and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of God. Thank you very much, Sabrina. And you were so cool under pressure there when we had technical difficulties. Mike, you too. What a team, hey? What a team. <laughs> um, we, are, uh, we are in a series right now where we are uh, taking a, a kind of an extended look at the crucifixion. And by the way, uh, there's, a, there's a sermon outline on the, on the back of the bulletin to help you follow along if that helps um, for those of you who m- it might help. Also, uh, we, we try to take questions whenever possible. Uh, my number is in the bulletin. You can text those questions at the end of the message uh, for, for clarification, that kind of thing. In any case, um, so we've been, we've been taking this extended look at the crucifixion. And the reason we've been doing that is because there are a lot of different reasons that people don't believe in Christianity. The, the list is as long as your arm. But one of the reasons that often does not get talked about all that much is actually the crucifixion itself. Um, people who are Christians, uh, around Good Friday every year, they really they get excited about this story, <laughs> about a person dying on the cross and his blood is being shed and people are praising him and all this kind of stuff. And and what they don't often understand is that to a non-Christian, like a person who has had no religious background or, 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 or any kind of exposure to this kind of stuff, it just seems crazy, uh, frankly. Um, some of you may have heard of a guy named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a, a famous scientist who has chosen to write on religion and philosophy as well. Uh, and he says at one point, and I quote, I, de- I have described the atonement, and when he means, what he says the atonement, he means the crucifixion of Jesus for sinners. He says, I have described the atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, and he is bang on with that, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. Well, okay. Um, what we're trying to understand this morning is why you shouldn't dismiss it as barking mad, but rather you should see the crucifixion of Jesus, if you understand it rightly, as actually incredibly beautiful. In fact, I'll go so far as to say you should see it as transformingly beautiful. I'll explain what I mean by that at the end. But what we're going to do uh, is try to unpack that a little bit this morning. And we definitely have our work cut out for us because this morning we're looking at an aspect of the crucifixion that is really, 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 really unpopular. In verse 25 of this passage that we read, uh, Paul, the writer of Romans, 
he says that God presented him, that is Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. And that is a, a particular Greek word he uses there that basically means that, that God presented his son Jesus as a sacrifice, as, as a propitiation, that's the fancy word, that means basically to turn away God's wrath. So God sacrificed his son in order to appease his own anger, satisfy his judgment on evil and injustice. And, and those of you who were here last week, you might say right away as I, as I say those words, you might think to yourself, but I thought last week you said that that's not what the crucifixion is about. Because people have a lot of problems with the crucifixion because it seems primitive and barbaric, you know, this bloody sacrifice uh, done to appease an angry God. And people say, ugh, you know, who wants any of that? It's 21st century Canada, and we're still believing this kind of weird stuff. And now, and, and I, last week I said, no, that's not what it is. And now it sounds this week like that I'm saying that is what it is. So what is it? Well, it's not that. I got to go back to last week very briefly, very quickly, and remind you that this is very different than human beings offering a sacrifice to an angry God. In verse 26 of this passage, it says this, He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justify those who have faith in Jesus. And what, what Peter is, or sorry, what Paul is saying is that the, cru the crucifixion of Jesus is a voluntary self-sacrifice. It's not people sacrificing to an angry God. It's, it's God sacrificing Himself to Himself. And I know that sounds kind of strange to you, but because of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God in human form, and He willingly sent Himself to this thing called the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So it's not like, like God is angry up there and He's saying, you better, you better, I want blood, give me blood or I'm going to smite you all. And we said, okay, let's find someone who's really good and really pure, like, you know, like a, a pure virgin, like pagan uh, religions might have done many, many centuries ago and let's put him on that cross and let's sacrifice him to God. No, God looked down and said, these are my people who I love and they have, they have rebelled against me and they have, are destroying their world and they're destroying themselves and they're destroying society. I've got to do something about this, but I'm a just God and the only way that I can, I can deal with sin is by actually punishing it, but I don't want to destroy them, so I'm going to, to, uh, I'm going to ask my son if he is willing to take that punishment for them and the son actually said, yes, I am, and therefore the crucifixion is the voluntary sacrifice of the Son on our behalf. And I said last week, you know, we shouldn't be too shocked at that because it's like kind of the ultimate theme of human literature and history. It's the story we can't get enough of. If you watch Lord of the Rings or read the books, if you read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or watch the movie, if you've watched The Matrix, if you like Harry Potter, if you like, um, what's her face? Come on, Hunger Games. You like the Hunger Games? Like that, that's the theme in all of these things. So it's not what we think, all right? So, but we gotta, hmm. 
we've got to show a little bit more how it was necessary that Jesus go through this. Because it's not enough to say, well, it's not some weird pagan sacrifice, and therefore everybody goes, oh, well, okay, it's not some weird pagan sacrifice. Now I believe it. We still need to show why it was necessary. Why did Jesus have to go through this? Why did God have to have his wrath satisfied in this way? And that's what we're going to look at briefly together this morning. We're going to look at what this text tells us the problem is, what the solution is, uh, why Jesus did it, and then what the payoff is. Four things, relatively briefly as we go through them in the time we have left. Here we go. First of all, what's the problem? You know, in, in the first part of this uh, passage, twice it says, God demonstrated His justice. He did this to demonstrate His justice. The issue here is justice, and the this that Paul's referring to, is the cross. So God did this, sent Jesus to demonstrate his justice. Here's the problem according to the Bible, and this is why we've got a real problem with it, because we don't like to hear what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us this, we are under God's judgment. God is angry with us, and he is angry with the injustice that we as a human race have perpetuated. Now, if you are sitting here and you're like, okay, I'm okay with the ideas of the human race perpetuating injustice because I've seen what's happening to the Rohingya, uh, uh, in, the Rohingya in, um, in Myanmar. I see what's happening in North Korea. I see, uh, I, I've read history and I know the Holocaust and all that. Yeah, there's injustice, but, but I'm not part of that because I'm just one person living my life, being a good person, paying my taxes, all that kind of stuff. I can't go into a long discourse trying to convince you that you're part of the problem, but you can listen to last week's sermon where I try. <laughs> That's the best I can do on that front because we got to keep going. The point is this, Jesus, God is angry at evil and injustice, and because he is angry at evil and injustice, he has a problem. He can't just let that go. He can't turn a blind eye to the evil that he sees around us. He has to deal with it. And the reason he has to deal with it is because of his attributes. These are the character traits that make God God. See, God is, is, is and this isn't just the Bible's description. This is what philosophers would say God has to be if he exists, okay? There's no controversy here. God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly merciful. He is perfectly gracious. He is perfectly truthful. He is perfectly loving. He is all these things. I keep saying perfectly, right? Because he is all these things to the superlative degree at the same time. So he is somehow perfectly just and somehow perfectly merciful at the same time. He is perfectly patient. It even talks about that in the passage where Paul says, he says, you know, uh, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He's talking about how God is perfectly patient. But God has to deal with injustice. And, and listen, that means he's angry. And unfortunately, we human beings, we, we, like, we don't like the idea of an angry God. We don't like it. We like a loving God. The problem is, is we don't understand that God is angry because He's loving. Because He's perfectly loving, He has to be perfectly angry at sin. Those two things are not opposed to one another. They actually inform one another and empower one another and strengthen one another. Uh, there's a woman by the name of, of Rebecca Pippert who uh, 
wrote a book where she tells her story. She was a, a student at Harvard University, a psych, psych student at Harvard University, and she had, she had exposure to religion and Christianity, and, and, and she was interested in it. And she was wrestling with this issue of, about God being, uh, God being perfectly just, but at the same time perfectly merciful. How, how he was angry at sin and he was angry at us, at human beings, for what we had done. But yet he was supposed to be merciful and she was struggling with these things and how they work together. And she really didn't like the idea that God could be mad at her and that God could be desirous of, of punishing her. But she, at the same time, had two friends who had fallen into drug addiction. And she was watching these friends falling deeper and deeper into the kind of the, the chains of this drug addiction. And she, she wrote in, in a book about this, this experience, she wrote that, that she, she said she wanted to shake them. She wanted to yell at them and say to them, do you see what's happening? Do you see that, that you're becoming less and less yourself every time I see you? Can you not see what you're doing to others, the kind of pain and suffering that you're causing other people's lives? And she was absolutely furious with them. She was so angry with them for what they were doing as a result of their, their, their addiction. And then all of a sudden it dawned on her that there wasn't a, a disconnect between anger at evil and love. In fact, the two were, were very closely joined together. This is what she wrote. Real love stands against deception, against the lie, against the sin that destroys. Anger and love are inseparably bound in experience. And if I, a flawed narcissistic woman that I am, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition out of love, how much more a morally perfect God who has made them? Anger, listen to this, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So God is angry. He doesn't hate us because He's not indifferent. He doesn't walk by our our addiction to self and our destroying of relationships and say, eh, whatever. He walks by and he sees it and he is, he is distraught over it and he is angry over it and he needs to deal with it. Okay, that's the problem. But the question becomes, okay, so even if that is the problem, here's my problem. Why does Jesus have to die for it? You know, in verse, uh, in verse 25, it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Why did Jesus have to shed his blood? It sounds so extreme. I get that he has to do something about it, fine. But why does it have to be so bad? And the answer is, partly, I, I, this is what I tried to explain last week, is that the problem is, is that you and I, we are worse than we think we are. And again, I'm just dropping that little bomb on you right now and saying, if you want to know more about it, listen to last week's sermon. Um, but what I want to try to do is try to explain why Jesus had to die from another angle, not so much the angle of you are worse than you actually think you are, but this angle. Stick with me. I hope it works. <laughs> what does it mean to sin against another person? When you commit an offense against another person. What does it mean to do that? It, it, means, it means to violate them, right? It means to hurt them. It means, in a sense, to treat them as less than what they are. 
to, to treat them in a way that they don't deserve. Human beings deserve dignity simply because they're human beings. They deserve kindness simply because of who they are. Christians talk, call this the image of God in them. But, but if you read the uh, UN Declaration of Human Rights, it talks about this too, that we have sort of inalienable rights by virtue of our nature as human beings. And when you offend another human being, when you, when you sin against them, what you are doing is, is you are violating their nature, so to speak. You trample on their human dignity. Well, what does it mean to sin against God? It essentially means the same thing. It means to violate His nature. It means to to treat Him as less than what He is, to treat Him in a way that He does not deserve. So God loves us. He cares for us. He cherishes us. What does He deserve from us? If He really made you, if, if there is a God, okay, and He made you, and He watches over you, and He provides for you, and He cares for you, and He loves you, what does He deserve in return for that? as the one who does all these things for us. Doesn't, doesn't it make sense that he deserves our obedience and our, our allegiance and our loyalty and our, our adoration? And when we don't give it, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible crime. Let me try to illustrate this uh, for you and, and make it concrete and clear. Anybody here a dog lover? A lot of dog love. There's got to be lots of dog lovers here. Come on. Yeah, I mean, you guys, I see you walking your dog eight times a day, so I know you love your dog, right? So dogs are great, right? I mean, cats are okay, but cats, they can't beat dogs because dogs, they just love you unconditionally, right? If you're up, they love you. If you're down, they love you. If you're cranky, they love you. If you uh, ignore them, they still love you. This is the wonderful thing about dogs. They're just so committed to us, right? Okay. What about a spouse? I think we would agree that a spouse is more valuable than a dog. Uh, If we don't agree, I guess we got things to talk about afterwards. That's fine. But a good spouse, at least is going to be more valuable than a dog. Their love and their commitment to you is going to be deeper than the love and commitment that that a dog can have, and and that's because they know you better, they they have a more intimate relationship with you, they understand you more deeply. I mean, frankly, dogs don't know how self-centered we really are because they don't have the cognitive ability to, so they love us anyway, right? But a human being, they know us better, and they know how bad we really are, and if they love us anyway, well, that's tremendous, that's wonderful, that's, that's amazing. Okay. Now, what about God? God knows us even more deeply and more intimately than even us, the best spouse would. He, he loves us with a, a purer love and has a greater devotion and a greater commitment to us. Now, now, think about it. If you abuse your relationship with your dog, you mistreat your dog, you ignore your dog, you abuse your dog. That is a serious thing. That's a serious offense. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's a very bad thing to be cruel to your dog. Now, what if, you, what if you mistreat your spouse? Because of the nature of your spouse as a human being and the nature of the relationship you have with your spouse, for you to abuse that relationship, that's far worse, infinitely worse, than to neglect your dog. But what if you abuse God? If, 
If there is a God, you owe much more to him than you ever owed to your dog or to your spouse. The, the offense of neglecting or abusing him because of who he is and because of the nature of his relationship with you is infinitely more. This is why a guy by the name of John Piper wrote this. He said, sin is not small because it is not against a small sovereign. The seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. The creator of the universe is infinitely worthy of respect and admiration and loyalty. Therefore, failure to love him is not trivial, it is treason. It defames God and destroys human happiness. And this is why Jesus had to go all the way to death, because his blood, as the blood of God, in a sense, because he is the second person of the Trinity, his blood is infinitely valuable. Our debt was infinitely costly, and therefore it needed an infinitely valuable payment. Jesus. Third, why did he do it? Why did he do it? The problem, the solution, the explanation. Oh, that's what I should have called it in the outline. That's cool. Problem, solution, explanation. Why did he do it? We're basically at, back at the start, right? In verse 26, it says, He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. Remember, God has to deal with sin. If a murderer commits murderer and he is guilty of that murder and it's obviously guilt, he's obviously guilty of that murder and he sits in front of the court and he says to the judge, I did it and I'm sorry. And the judge says, well... Okay, since you've said sorry, off you go. We would not consider that judge a good judge. We would want that judge disbarred. We, we, you hear it all the time when we don't like what judges hand down in their judgments, that people uh, 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 protest and, and are, are angry about it because we want justice to be done. We want our judges to be just. The judge has to say, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're sorry and that you're remorseful, but, but the penalty needs to be paid. It must be done. But God is love, right? God is love, too. He's not, he's not satisfied to simply execute rebels or, or banish us from his existence. And so it says he wanted to be just and the one who justifies. What does that mean? You've got to come back next week. But for today, the reason God let Jesus die in our place and let him face the punishment that you and I justly deserve was so that he could be just and merciful. He could be perfectly righteous and perfectly gracious at the same time. So he would never have to violate any part of his characteristics and his attributes. And, and you may say that that sounds weird to me, but don't forget, if God wasn't just, you wouldn't want to worship him. Who wants to worship a God who winks at sin and says, oh, they're there, you know, so you did some bad stuff. Oh, well, to err is human. Well, that's fine to say that to, say that to you when you forgot to put that extra zero on your tax return, but you can't say that to someone who has been, who has been, uh, uh, who has been destroying people's lives like a drug as a drug dealer for decades and decades and handing out fentanyl-laced cocaine bags to the people on the streets in downtown Hamilton? Are you happy with God just saying to them, okay, we all screw up to err as human? Of course not. He has to be just. But he so longs to be merciful. And so Jesus said, I'll take it. 
I'll take it so that God can be both. Now, what's the payoff? Last point quickly, what's the payoff? I said before, the cross is not barbaric. The cross is beautiful. That's what I said right at the very beginning. And this is, this, this is how you can see that the cross is actually beautiful because only through the cross can we see that it's love that awakens our hearts. It's love that God uses love to awaken our hearts, not fear. And this is what makes Christianity unique among all the great religions in the world. Stick with me here for a minute. People think that Christians are Christians because they're afraid. God's going to get you. And if you don't want God to get you, you better believe him. Go to church, put money in the offering plate, keep your nose clean. That's how, how it works. And if, you're, if you keep your nose clean enough, then at the end of the day, God will bless you or he'll save you or he'll take, take you to heaven or whatever. But listen, fear has actually never made someone repent. Fear has never made someone trust and love Jesus. All fear has ever done is modified their behavior. But here, here you see love motivates true devotion. True story. I don't know if you know this, but oftentimes pastors, especially in small communities, they get asked to be chaplains of the local hospital. And so they take turns. And you get a pager, and uh, if somebody needs you in the middle of the night, the hospital calls, and off you go when you're on call. And uh, a pastor got a call in the middle of the night, and so he rushed down to the hospital, and he entered the, the, the room of the guy who had called for him. And the guy who had called for him, he basically said, listen, uh, pastor, I'm really, really sorry. I'm sorry I bothered you. Uh, that was a mistake. He said, what happened was, was uh, a while ago, uh, the doctors came in, and I had had x-rays done, and they came in with the x-rays, and they told me I only had about a month to live. And I freaked right out. And so I called for you. But about 15 minutes later, they came back with, with another set of x-rays, and they were very apologetic, and they told me that they had brought me the wrong x-rays, and it turns out I'm not dying. But he said, you know, I'm, I'm not really very religious, it's not really for me. I'm not all that interested anymore. True story. Thanks for coming anyway. And all that does is, is it proves that fear cannot awaken love. If you're just afraid to die and meet the judge, that will not awaken love. That might change your behavior and make you do all those things that make you look good and religious, but it won't awaken your affections. And that's what God longs for us, that we would love him the way he loves us, that we would delight in him the way he delights us in us. To see Jesus sacrificing himself for you, that melts your heart. And it makes you love him. One more story very, very quickly. Also a true story. Um, in 1955, Billy Graham, many of you know who he is. If you didn't before, you do now because he died. People are often more famous in death than they are in life. Billy Graham, famous evangelist, was invited to Cambridge University in, in the United Kingdom. This is one of the top three, five universities in pretty much the world. And letters leading up to his attending that university for, to do a crusade, letters were being written to the Times of London. And um, 
And in these letters, people were writing and saying like, oh, it's such a tragedy that why is Billy Graham coming? This fundamentalist Baptist preacher is coming to Cambridge University to speak to the brightest and best of our future. This is a travesty. And Billy Graham read these letters ahead of time before he came and sort of kind of freaked him out a little bit. And so he studied like a maniac. He studied philosophy and he studied theology and he studied science and he studied all the great thinkers that he could and crammed his brain full of them so that when he got to his crusade, he could speak with, with, uh, with erudition to all these brilliant uh, philosophers and, and, and people who would be in the audience. And he spoke for four night, or three nights and the first night, he tried to interact with all these philosophers and stuff and on the second night, he tried the same thing and he just <laughs> fell flat on his face. It was terrible. It was a disaster. Okay, And so the story is, is that he, that, that night, before his last talk, he stayed, stayed up all night and he just prayed. And he came to the conclusion that he was just, the next day, he was just going to go back to what he does and he was going to preach the cross. And now the story is picked up years later by a, by a, a professor of theology uh, in a magazine. And he says this, he was a Cambridge student when Graham preached this last lecture. And he says in this interview, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel sitting on the floor at Great St. Mary's with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one side of me and the chaplain of the college, who was a future bishop, on the other side of me. Both of these were good men but completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. Dear Billy Graham got up that night and began at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice in it. The blood was flowing all over the Great Hall. You know that's not literally, right? Okay. Everywhere for three quarters of an hour. Both my neighbors were horribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ and also smug, knowing that no bright, sophisticated, young British person is going to listen to any of this stuff. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. There were only 8,000 students in the student body at that time. And he goes on like this, I remember meeting a young pastor some years later, a Cambridge graduate at Birmingham Cathedral. Over a cup of tea, I said, where do Christian things begin for you? Oh, at Cambridge in 1955, he said. When? Billy Graham. What night? It was Wednesday night. How did that happen? Well, he said, all I remember is that I walked out of Great St. Mary's for the first time in my life thinking, Christ really died for me. That simple message changed his life. It's changed my life. It's changed billions of lives. Maybe it could change yours too. Let's pray. Father, we don't understand everything about the Bible. We pray that you would forgive our unbelief and our unwillingness to accept the truth that forgiveness is one for us in Jesus Christ. 
Help us to see that it's not barbaric, but that it's beautiful. And may we leave this place ready to believe that it's true, our guilt can be taken away, our shame can be removed, justice can be done, and love truly does conquer all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.